Welcome to the McGuire Iron Podcast. My name is Brian Cooper. I am the Director of Marketing at McGuire Iron and the host for this podcast. At McGuire Iron, we've been helping to store and protect quality water for over 100 years. On this episode, our guest is Elmer Ronnenbaum, the General Manager of the Kansas Rural Water Association. Elmer has been employed by the Kansas Rural Water Association since 1983. Elmer has guided the services by the KRWA for public water and wastewater systems through sound management of programs. As training director for many years, he has been critical to the development and facilitation of many training venues for public water systems. KRWA is recognized for its outstanding annual conference with the highest number of attendees nationally. He initiated a GPS mapping program and also the program that provides inspection services and on-site assistance for the popular self-help program, CanStep. On three occasions, he testified before legislative committees in the U.S. Senate and House of Representatives on behalf of the National Rural Water Association in support of the Public Water Supply Revolving Loan Fund, and most recently before the Senate Ag Committee in support of funding for water and wastewater systems by USDA Rural Development. He has represented public water systems on numerous occasions in commenting on a variety of issues before legislative committees in Kansas. Elmer, thank you for joining me on the McGuire Iron Podcast. Well, thank you, Brian. Let's start with who is the Kansas Rural Water Association and when were you guys founded? Kansas Rural Water was one of the very first such organizations that was incorporated in the United States, uh, founded in 1966. And at that time, the goal of having an organization was to help lend political support to the funding agency, which was at the time the Farmers Home Administration, in helping provide the funding to build new rural water systems in the state. It it was uh, chartered and uh, they developed an organization that had nine members of a board of directors. What is the current mission of the Kansas Rural Water Association? Our official statement is to provide education, technical assistance, and leadership to public water and wastewater utilities to enhance the public health and to sustain Kansas communities. And who? what does your membership makeup look like? You, you know, you mentioned you have a few of them mentioned there in your mission statement, but who makes up Kansas Rural Water? In the earlier days of the association, it was strictly rural water districts, which were those pipeline systems that installed PVC out across the countryside to reach farmers and rural residents. And then in about 1980, we had a great influx of municipal systems, and it happened as a result of being able to provide training and technical assistance to the smaller and medium-sized municipal systems. Today, the municipal water systems in Kansas, those including some of the larger municipal systems, uh, make up uh, 475 of the members, and we have approximately 260 of the rural water districts. Kansas is somewhat unique because it has so many smaller rural water systems, whereas the development of rural water systems in other states, such as Iowa and the Dakotas, took a different approach. They took a more regional approach from the very start. 
So in Kansas, we had a county that had 15 different water districts, uh, all serving smaller communities down to 25 to 30 customers up to seven or 800 in the same county. And subsequently, a lot of those have been consolidated with each other or merged as time went along and the economies of scale simply demanded that and also trying to comply with drinking water regulations and water treatment. You know, you've been around the Kansas Rural Water Association for a long time. What are some of the largest changes you've seen besides, you know, the way that your membership has grown in that time? Most of the rural water districts, when they were developed, were all developed by uh, members who signed up, and and that's still the case. We still have some expansion of rural systems, but for the most part, the eastern uh, 50% of the state is covered uh, pretty well by rural systems. Uh, there is not uh, the, if you will, volunteer spirit that I believe was present 35 to 50 years ago when these systems were first developed by today's population. Part of that is driven by economic. Uh, People are having off-the-farm jobs plus an on-the-farm job, and too many people would... It's whatever they make as their priority. If they need a water supply, I think people will still get after it and develop it, but Today's Rural Water Board members do not have to generally go out and obtain easements, locate a water supply, and develop the whole thing from bare nothing. Yeah, that's a good point. It, you know, rural water looks much different than it did in the past. And how, how has your organization been able to help with some of that transition or fill in some of the gaps or help teach those who you know, are now part of that system? Well, for the most part, I'm not sure that the rural water associations and other like-type technical assistance providers would have near the stature that they do today were it not for all of the regulations that come from EPA and other agencies. And what we find is that there are fewer and fewer people, particularly in North Central Kansas has a huge outmigration of population. In many of these small communities, there is not the human capital to uh, do the operation and maintenance work that's necessary to meet all of the compliances, the technical processes to treat water and wastewater have generally become much more sophisticated than the uh, average person is trying to keep up with. I one time remember using a telephone modem line and trying to learn about the groundwater rule, and I tried to download the guidance document from EPA on a telephone line modem, and it was 356 pages long. And I thought, well, if I had been able to accomplish that, what would I do? Put it in a box and make sure the edges were straight and then go get a drill bit and put it into some sort of a document, and then lay that on the city clerk's desk or the operator's desk and say, well, here's the guidance on the groundwater rule. So that's said somewhat facetiously, but as an organization, we have staff members and also working in 
conjunction with the state primacy agencies, as other rural water associations and other training organizations do, are able to do the outreach necessary to try to help condense the 365 pages to an eight and a half by 11, one or two page bullet point thing on saying, here is exactly what you need to do and forget about all that federal register talk. Right. And I think that's a good point you bring up is that's one of the benefits that Kansas Rural Water provides to its members. What are some of those other benefits that if these members are members of your organization get from being part of your your team? We provide um, on-site technical assistance and, of course, the training. I think that many of the public water supply systems in Kansas are not really aware of the, uh, if you will, degree of influence that an organization has versus what they might try to do on their own. I was looking back uh, to 1990, and Kansas Rural Water Association has either sponsored or and endorsed or vehemently opposed more than 50 pieces of legislation in the Kansas legislature. Most everything that the association has endorsed uh, became law for the benefit of the public water supply systems. An example would be um, clarification of sales tax. Public water supply systems were being charged sales tax on purchases, not all purchases, but some purchases, and we were able to establish a more uniform way of having public water supply systems still support the state, but not be nickel and dimed on the sales tax uh, and the complications of sales tax that was being used in Kansas. So that's, that was one way to just streamline and simplify life for lots of people, including the contractors and the accountants who had to audit and maintain compliance. Not too many years ago, we were asked by the state to help support the construction of community facilities under a program that was known as self-help. We nicknamed it the CAN-STEP program. And under that program, we were able to provide uh, on-site inspection and technical assistance to help construct several water systems, improvement projects in small towns, community buildings, fire stations, uh, and senior citizen centers. We did a total of 87 building projects. And while that was fun, it was also a challenge because oftentimes we felt like the general contractor who was trying to superintend the local volunteers. But it was a very rewarding program, and it helped many local communities obtain facilities that they otherwise would not have been able to accomplish. One of the other things you mentioned is the technical training aspect, and I don't think a lot of listeners out there really understand the challenges and the amount of training operators in these water and wastewater systems need to be able to stay current with all the things they need to know to successfully run systems. So how does how does your team and your organization help out with that? On an annual basis, we conduct approximately 100 days to 110 days of on-site training in classroom. The COVID-19 
virus has caused that to be changed. And in Kansas, which previously did not allow online training, that's now one of the new benefits, if you will, of having virtual training available. When I was a new rural water board director in 1972, there was no organization that could provide any help, if you will. The association was there, but they largely were not an active, holding active training sessions. Uh, to learn about different processes and methods and construction methods and materials. And that's one of the benefits of holding an annual conference with a large number of exhibitors where people can come in and shop until they drop, so to speak. Uh, they can compare the products and services. I know that some people might call it a manufacturer showcase, but if you're going to buy a backhoe, you don't go to the Chevrolet dealer. And so if we can put all of those materials under one roof at one time and have 2,000 to 2,300 people show up for an annual conference for three days, uh, that satisfies both those suppliers and the purchasers. And I think that's a healthy thing. And I think it also creates a lot of competition that otherwise would not be there. This morning, as an example, um, we do GPS mapping and Mark, who works on that here at our office, uh, and I discussed holding a, a smaller meeting where there's a new technology available that will cost less money, and there have been several systems want to learn about that, and that is not a typical training session. We're not collecting or awarding operator credit hours for that, but we are here to help introduce that more affordable and more uh, sustainable model to uh, five or six water systems at a time. Um, as an organization, Kansas Rural Water doesn't accept any commissions or remuneration in any partnership arrangement with any organization, company, or vendor. I think we're squeaky clean on that, and we're going to remain that way. You touched on your conference a little bit. Let's let's dive into your annual conference. You, the Kansas Rural Water Association, for the listeners out there who may not know, is one of, if not the largest, rural attended rural water conference in the country. Tell me about where did this idea come from, Elmer, and how have you and your team grown it to the place where it is today, and what are the things that are benefits for your members out of a conference like this? Well, the conference has uh, sort of taken on a life of its own, and it's a challenge to have uh, eight concurrent training sessions with uh, up to 85 different presenters over a two-and-a-half-day period, uh, 360 exhibitors, um, an entertainment, food that is always going to be pleasing to everyone, no matter what their taste, um, and all of the social networking that needs to go on. It's uh, when we attempt to put a conference together, everything is in alphabetical order and very organized, and I tell our staff, when we walk in there, we should just be able to punch play, and everything should start to flow smoothly. And that's okay until the first one or two circuit breakers pop and we've got to go find something new with an electrical system. But we've been in 
the Century 2 Convention Center in Wichita for the past 26 years. We've had to cancel in 2020 and also have canceled the 2021 conference. Um, it becomes or has become a bit of a not only a learning exercise, but a friendship maker and, if you will, little mini away from home for many of the operators and rural water uh, managers, administration staff. Uh, it's a great peer networking. What we want to do, what my goal is personally, is to provide as much bang for the buck as we can and not charge any more than we have to. We do not use our conference as a fundraiser. If only half of the people showed up, we'd probably lose a lot of money. So it, it has simply grown because it has been popular with those who have attended and uh, we try to make it a learning event, also have some fun and keep everything legal at the same time. You touched on it a little bit that you had to cancel 2020 and you've had to cancel 2021. You know, everybody in the world is dealing with COVID-19. How has that changed the way that your organization has had to do things, not only with your annual annual conference, but just on a day-to-day basis? Our staff never stopped going to public water supply systems or wastewater systems to help them in person. We had to stop doing in-person training, and as a result, we pushed on the state, which had never before allowed online training, virtual sessions, to develop a program so that we could demonstrate that it could be conducted in a way that was accountable and documentable, and we've been able to do that, and I think it's been a very much appreciated, certainly by the operators. We're doing it in two and a half hour block sessions. So uh, the state will award uh, five hours of training credit towards renew uh, operator certification. So we do t- two, two and a half hour sessions. And it, it's uh, very helpful to the local people to not have to travel and they can withstand two and a half hours of computer monitor time. Do you think that this is something that will continue moving forward, or do you see your organization doing a hybrid or going back to the way you were doing it before? I think we'll do a hybrid because there are too many people who could benefit from technologies, for example, where there is a presenter who may be in Chattanooga or Spokane who can't necessarily get away to travel to Salina, Kansas. Uh, that's expensive, and there isn't any reason that that information can't be conveyed uh, virtually just as well as in person, albeit there is a huge advantage to having in-person training because of the peer networking that can also go on at those sessions. What are some of the other things that you have been helping systems out with during COVID-19? Well, the requests haven't stopped. The uh, COVID-19 is something that people are dealing with, but I don't know that it's outside of the social distancing and the wearing a mask, which we endorsed from the start, uh, has changed any of the responsibilities by any local water supply systems. What we have found is that some of the larger communities are simply prohibiting use of their facilities or in counties 
no county government will allow, for example, use of any public facilities that they have uh, governance over. So that pretty much eliminates uh, the in-person training uh, regardless. How has this, you know, has it has it presented a challenge at all, or it, has it really brought up any new opportunities that your team has seen to help, you know, your members in a different way than they did before outside of the in-person training? I think the virtual training has been the biggest impact. Um, when people call here to the office or call a staff member, they know they're going to talk to a human. And if that person can't answer the question and provide the help, that person, regardless of the staff member, will give them a referral or will contact another staff member and we will double team on the thing until we get the problem solved. I don't know what else to say about that except is if you contact Kansas Rural Water, you're going to get an answer. And if we can't, if we can't give it uh, somebody else, we will make sure somebody else does. And it's not going to be two weeks from now. It's going to be today. And I think that's an important thing that your organization is taking on because in in times like these, you know, when when people need answers, you know, it's it's a great that they can get a hold of you, talk to a human, as you said, and and get an answer so they can have their problem solved. We try not to be boastful about things, but I've often had a email and text exchanges, as I know other people do in other associations across the country, at 11 o'clock at night and 4 o'clock in the morning, um, working on some issue. Our staff, uh, on lots of emergencies, will be out there. We offer our services 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. And yes, we have repaired and helped find leaks on Christmas Day for people in small water systems, help repair river crossings. We don't have hurricanes in this part of the world, but we do have tornadoes. We have ice storms. Um, we have a, a lot of effort in Kansas goes on looking for water line leaks uh, from the uh, rural systems. And we we're very fortunate to have a staff of 21 people. Uh, many of those have decades of experience operating and maintaining water and wastewater systems. Five of the staff members have previously worked at the Department of Health and Environment. Three are retired from that, so they're somewhat part-time. We have two staff members who are licensed geologists and worked in the Division of Water Resources with water rights, which is a huge issue in the state of Kansas. Uh, so I think we have a good team that has a total work experience of almost 600 years in the industry. That's an amazing amount of knowledge, and that's another thing that you know is a benefit to your members. What are some of the other things that you see um, that are issues that are facing water systems in Kansas that you know you guys have been dealing with, or you see that are upcoming uh, in in the years to come? Well, in Kansas, like many places, the as I mentioned earlier, the reduction of human capital in some of these smaller places, they're just not the availability of operators. And so there has to be efforts made to not necessarily consolidate these systems, but at least have the mindset that they can share an operator. I want to say 
good things about National Rural Water Association because a number of our staff members are funded through programs that are administered through that agency, and that funding comes from USDA Rural Development or the Environmental Protection Agency. In Kansas, we are able to provide services because of a contract with our state water office and also the Kansas Department of Health and Environment. We need to bid those contracts, and so uh, I think we've provided great service under those contracts, but that funding is very important and critical to our being able to provide those services. At the national level, I think the regulations and the review of the regulations by the staff in Washington is critically important uh, to make sure that we all work to try to keep the regulations as reasonable and as affordable as possible. Too many of the small systems in Kansas can be sold a bit of a bill of goods if they have a nitrate at number 11 as a as a new hit, and the standard is 10, there'll be people who will want to advocate building of a nitrate removal plant instead of trying to address how to potentially reduce the nitrate content in the drinking water. So we do have systems in Kansas that have gotten themselves into projects that are going to become affordable for those communities as they have a declining uh, customer base, and that's something that those communities are going to be saddled with. I don't know what the answer is, except that we all try to work to provide the most affordable remedy to the problems that exist. And I think that's a great point about, you know, the experience that your team brings to to help those systems. But, you know, you said earlier that that's one of the benefits is, you know, the lobbying piece of your organization. Talk a little bit more about that, because I don't think people realize how much work that, you know, state rural water associations, you know, working in conjunction with the National Rural Water Association do to make sure that regulations are, you know, what they should be and that you guys have one voice instead of, you know, all kinds of different voices in the room. Since 1983, I've been making trips to Washington to meet with federal legislators. I remember the first time going without even having an appointment with Senator Dole's office, thinking that I could maybe just walk in and talk to somebody. That's not how that works. Uh, But every year subsequent to that, I was able to meet with the senator and or other elected officials from Kansas. And that didn't require that we had some political good standing with the agency, with that that, uh, office through campaign contributions or anything of the sort. It was because of who we represented. And as one of the senators one time told me, to my face, Elmer, what we appreciate from Kansas Rural Water is if we ask you to do something and you tell us you're going to do it. We don't worry about it because we know it's going to be taken care of. Um, And personally, and not to toot my own horn, but National Rural Water asked me to testify three times before House and Senate committees on various funding, including USDA rural development and the EPA state revolving loan funds. And in Kansas, I suspect we probably a time or two felt like we were wearing out our welcome by 
testifying and commenting on many bills that were introduced uh, in the state. So I think we have uh, a good rapport with uh, all of those folks, and we appreciate everything that they in turn have tried to do. I think most people have their hearts in the right spots, and they don't do things just to be doing it. But uh, the people who we represent uh, need support and attention and funding, and I think that through the mechanisms that with National Rural Water and our state efforts, uh, we've been able to accomplish a lot of that. Finally, the, the last thing I wanted to talk about a little bit was what does the future look like for the Kansas Rural Water Association? You know, you've seen in your career so much change to today, but what are you guys looking at in the future, and where is the organization going? The organization, I think, is as only as good as its board members and staff members. I don't think that anything is going to change in the mission of the organization. I think that the attention to the small communities is paramount in helping them. We're going to continue to do what needs to be done to help the local communities meet their drinking water and wastewater regulations and compliance and be able to provide good service. Well, Elmer, I appreciate you taking the time uh, to speak to our listeners today and talk about the great things that Kansas Rural Water Association has done in the past, is doing currently, and will be doing in the future for its members. Well, thank you. And if anyone wants to check us out, uh, I'm like that politician who's running for an office. Uh, you can see us on our website at www.krwa.net. And if you want to read specifically about what we're doing, check out all the letters that we post under technical assistance. I don't know of anyone else in America who is as transparent as that. All right, Elmer, I appreciate it. Thank you for joining us on the podcast. Thank you very much, Brian. Remember, you can always connect with us by going to our website, mcguireiron.com. You can ask questions by sending us an email at info at mcguireiron.com, or you can follow or reach out to us on any of our social media platforms, we are on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Thank you for joining us on the McGuire Iron Podcast.